what is the writer saying to us? Well, he's saying that God had a glorious plan for humanity. We failed in our exercise of the dominion God gave us. And so now in Jesus Christ, as we look at him, we see the one man who never failed, never sinned, never denied the glorious calling of God for humanity. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, we begin a message today called Leading Many to Glory. But why do you think the uh, writer of Hebrews has begun helping us just really fix our eyes on Jesus? What, what do you think the significance of that is? Hebrews is written to a group of people who are in danger of drifting away from the gospel message, even drifting away from the Savior himself. And the writer, in order to draw their hearts back and keep them tethered to Christ, is painting for them a very grand picture of the implications of the gospel, of the significance of the work of Jesus. And, and he zoomed right out to show us the the significance in terms of the purpose of humanity in God's creation and the future of humanity in God's redemption plan. And here in the passage we're going to focus in on today, the writer's going to show us that the work of Jesus is of eternal significance and of glorious worth. It's so thrilling to see the, the grand plan of God at work in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to see that today from the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 2, starting at verse 5, going into the first few verses of chapter 3. So if you have a Bible handy, grab it and join us there as we begin a message called Leading Many to Glory. Here is Jonathan. The other day, you may have noticed the international media were positively aglow with the news that Prince William and his young family eschewed the private jet and flew commercial for their late summer holiday. Fellow passengers on their budget flight to Scotland could hardly believe that the royals had come so low, had shared their flight, and traveled as they did. At the heart of the message of the Bible is the far more startling news that the eternal and royal Son of God was born in a stable, walked among us on this earth, and gave his life on a Roman cross. And Hebrews chapter 2 invites us to give that stunning reality some very careful thought. Last week, the question that we tackled together was this, just how exalted is Jesus Christ? And we discovered that as the true Son of God, He is the most exalted person in all the universe. And because He is so highly exalted, we need to listen to Him. The first readers of this letter, they needed to hear that message because as Jewish believers coming out of a Jewish background, they were coming under pressure to treat the Old Testament law as the final and the complete Word of God. They were under pressure to set aside the gospel revealed by Jesus Christ and to return to the rites and the rituals of the Old Testament law. But the writer took time in chapter 1 to prove from the Old Testament Scriptures that the Old Testament expected a Messiah who would be God Himself, the truly exalted one. That was chapter 1. That was the burden. That was the emphasis. But if chapter 1 tackled the question of just how highly exalted Jesus is, chapter 2 now tackles a rather different question. If Jesus is so highly exalted, if He is indeed God Himself, then why did He come so very low? 
Why did he come so low in his humanity, in his suffering, even in his death? We've just entered election season here, as we all know, and campaigning is now in full swing. And during the campaign, it's going to be very important for all the party leaders to project the right kind of image. They need to project an image of confidence, an ability to win, and a plausible capacity to take their place on the world stage representing a great nation. For the people of Israel in the first century, the promised Messiah was expected to be a great political and military leader. He was going to remove the yoke of the Roman oppression from Israel, and he was going to lead the nation to take their rightful place on the world stage as the very people of God, the chosen nation. That was the popular expectation for the Messiah. And so when the true Messiah came, and he showed very little interest in the world of politics, and he had no interest in a military campaign at that time, all of that was very, very perplexing to people from a Jewish background. But far more troubling to them was this. The would-be king, he not only failed to defeat the Romans, he was in fact defeated by the Romans. He was humiliated and executed as a criminal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you don't need to turn to this, but you may remember, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes of this offense of the cross of Christ. He says this, verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. Now, that's the issue. That is the problem. That is the challenge. That is the offense that the writer is dealing with here in chapter 2. If Jesus is truly the Messiah, if He is even more exalted than we had anticipated or expected, if He is indeed the divine Son of God, then why did He come so low in humanity, in suffering, and in death? Now, Hebrews begins by answering that question in a kind of big-picture, general way, and he tells us this first. Jesus needed to come so low in order to lead us to glory. After a decade and more of planning and 16 months of delays, the long-awaited Confederation Line, LRT, opened here in Ottawa yesterday. Maybe some of you went for a ride on it. It was a day of rejoicing to see the project completed and all those many promises fulfilled. But like with so many long-range infrastructure projects of this kind, there are times during the process and during the waiting when you could be forgiven for wondering if the plan has been derailed or forgotten or sidelined in some way. Were the authorities still committed to it despite all the wranglings at City Hall, despite the sinkholes opening up, despite budgetary challenges and engineering obstacles and, and all the rest? There's no doubt that God had a grand plan for humanity right back at the beginning, back in the Garden of Eden. But, you know, that was a long time ago. That was a very long time ago. And along the way, there have been plenty of setbacks and disappointments, plenty of sinkholes to navigate. There's been the fall and, and the flood and the rebellion and the revolt, even the murder of the very Son of God. And with so many setbacks over so many years, we might well ask the question, does God's original plan for humanity still stand? Is He still committed to it? Will we ever see the finished product, the grand outcome of all that God intended? 
One thing that Hebrews wants us to see and wants us to understand very clearly is that God cares deeply about humanity. And he's never for one moment abandoned his grand plans for us. You may remember that back in chapter 1, there was quite a lot of emphasis and discussion about the, the stature of the angels, and we had to figure that out and, and do some work on that. And at the start of our passage today, the writer states very simply that, that the world to come, it isn't built for the sake of the angels. They're not going to rule it, verse 5 of chapter 2, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The angels, they may be dignified creatures, but heaven, it's not built for them. And so, in verse 6, the writer turns back to the Old Testament, to words that actually come from Psalm 8, to remind us of God's grand plan for humanity. Now, this, this psalm that the writer quotes, Psalm 8, it, it plays such an important part in the writer's argument here in chapter 2. I'd like just to turn back there if we could. This is the one Old Testament reference we're going to turn back to today, but this is Psalm 8. Now, Psalm 8 is a psalm that, that I like to say looks back wistfully to the days at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, the days before the fall of humanity, to those, those very first days. It looks back wistfully. But at the very same time, it looks forward prophetically to the day of Jesus Christ and to the fulfillment of the promises of God. Now, now just listen to the psalm with me and notice what it says about God's grand design. O Lord, our Lord, Psalm 8 and verse 1, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, here is a psalm, a song written by King David, speaking of the wonderful and the dignified uh, role that God has given humanity. He recalls the time of creation, remembering the Garden of Eden and what God did there. He gave the human beings, the first human beings, as representatives of the race. He, he gave us dominion over the works of His hand, putting all things under the feet of humanity, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds and fish, and so on. That's how it was at the creation. God gave to Adam and Eve a very dignified role, just a little bit lower than the angels, crowning them with glory and honor as bearers of His image, of the divine image, representing God in God's world. But at the time of writing, David knows as well that the first human beings have failed to be the representatives of God that they should have been. They failed to rule God's world in God's way. He knows that because of sin, that the system that God set in place, it's not functioning as it should. The creation is not sitting peaceably under the feet of humanity. There's plenty of chaos and disorder in the world. And so this psalm, this song which celebrates the pattern, it's actually full of hope. Despite the mess that the world is in, in David's day or in our day, despite the fact that God's design for creation is not currently working out as it should, 
David holds to the promise. He holds to the pattern. He holds to the plan. His psalm, it, it points forward to a redemption and a renewal yet to come. It, it points forward to a day when God's plans will be ultimately fulfilled. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called Leading Many to Glory. A look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, through the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to get back to this message in just a moment. You know, if you ever uh, miss a broadcast here and Encounter the Truth, I want you to know you can always come to the website and you can listen there. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org, and that's a great place to go to find out more about Jonathan Griffiths and Encounter the Truth. A great way to support the ministry, because we are a listener-supported broadcast ministry. We do depend on your generosity to keep this program on this station. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Daily Readings from All Four Gospels. It's one that Jonathan would highly recommend. In fact, he's going to talk about that a little bit later in the broadcast, so I hope you'll stay with us. But this book is written by J.C. Ryle, and it is really full of hidden treasures that we find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as they recount Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. We'd love to send you a copy of this book as you give a gift of any amount. To find out more or to give right now, head to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. And so now back to, to Hebrews. When the, the writer of Hebrews quotes this psalm, He's saying to us that, that God's grand plan for humanity, it's still in view. It hasn't been forgotten. It hasn't been shelved. It hasn't been set aside. And he's signaling to us, crucially, that the self-lowering of the Son of God, his descent to earth, it is at the very heart of bringing this plan to fruition. So back here in, in Hebrews 2, at the end of the quotation from the psalm there in verse 8, this is what we read. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is, to humanity in the Garden of Eden, to Adam, he, that is God, left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. No, no, we don't. The fall has made a mess of that. But here's the thing we do see. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What is the writer saying to us? Well, he's saying that God had a glorious plan for humanity. We failed in our exercise of the dominion God gave us. So is that the end of the line? Is that the dream dead? Is that the plan forgotten? No. No, it isn't. God sent Jesus to be a son of man, to be a true human being, to become one of us, and then as a human being to fulfill the calling perfectly. And so now in Jesus Christ, as we look at him, we see the one man who never failed, never sinned, never denied the glorious calling of God for humanity. We see the perfect human being. But not only did Jesus live this flawless human life, he then suffered a death that he didn't deserve. He, he suffered the death belonging to me and belonging to you because of our failure to be the human beings we ought to be. 
And what's the result of all that? What's the effect? Verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Bringing many sons to glory. Now that's what Jesus was doing. He was leading us, his saved people, to glory. He was leading us to the world to come where we, the saints, the Bible tells us, will share in his rule and share in his reign, where we will exercise dominion in a new heaven and a new earth just as God created and called us to right from the start. Now, that is God's big plan. But for all that to work, the Messiah had to become a human being. He had to become one of us to save us. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. We share a common humanity. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. This week, of course, marked the anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And on the day of the anniversary, I, I looked through a photo essay that one of the news outlets had produced, and I was, I was moved again by the horrendous tragedy of it all. It all just came back, a dreadful suffering and the loss of life. I, I was particularly struck by the reflections of a New York firefighter that were captured in this little essay, reflecting really on the agonizing choice that he faced as all New York firefighters on the scene chased that day. And the decision was this, do we run away from the danger, the danger of these buildings which are certain to collapse at any time, or do we run inside in order to save the perishing? What a choice to face. And so many ran inside, as we know, and so many perished through those great acts of bravery. With the world in such a disastrous state, why did the Lord Jesus Christ decide to come down and enter into all this, into all the suffering, into all the mess? Why did he accept and embrace a sure and a certain death? Well, here's the answer of Hebrews. He came down that he might raise us up. He became a human being that he might lead human beings to glory. Now, that's the big picture. Jesus had to become a human being to save us. But having given us the big picture, the writer now takes some time to walk us through some of the closer details. Why specifically and why precisely did Jesus need to become a human being to save us? What are the logical elements kind of underpinning that? Well, a little bit more specifically now, Jesus had to come low in humanity in order to defeat death. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same things, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is, of course, the great enemy of humanity. It is the great achievement and accomplishment of the devil. It is the sadness at the heart of our very existence. It is the tragedy lurking in the shadows at the edge of every loving relationship. In that 9-11 photo essay, I saw a quite famous picture of a woman named Marcy Borders, 
who became known as the Dust Lady of 9-11. The picture captures her while taking refuge in a nearby office building, well-dressed, clearly well-presented that morning as she went to work, but simply covered head to toe in white dust. Now, initially, it looks like a picture of survival and a picture of victory. She, she was close, very close, but she escaped. But then I read the caption beneath the picture, Marcy died in 2015 of lung cancer, no doubt due to that toxic dust, aged 42. As we remember 9-11, we think this week of the terrible toll of Hurricane Dorian, vast numbers of people from the Bahamas still unaccounted for, and the official death toll rising by the day. We think of those closer to home, some here in this gathering this morning, who are grieving the recent loss of loved ones, others who are battling serious illness and now having to reckon with the reality of death. This menacing reality of death, it is so ugly, isn't it? It feels so wrong, and yet we encounter it at every turn as we navigate life in this world. Verse 14 is, I think, an amazing verse. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. One of our kids at home had a nasty fall this week, and we spent a few hours in the hospital as a, as a result. When it, when it happened, it was a little startling for us and for him. You know, pretty good gash on the face, lots of blood everywhere and all that kind of thing. Not a very pleasant thing. But when that happens, as it does from time to time with little kids, you're reminded as a parent of their fragility. That, that was the thing that came home for us. I mean, they bounce around all the time, and they get knocks and bruises, and they're full of vitality. But then when a more visible injury comes along, you remember that although they're young and they're strong, they're also fragile. They're flesh and their blood, they're vulnerable. Now, Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepped into our fragility, the fragility of the children of humanity, verse 14. He took on and embraced all that fragility, and He did so that He might defeat our great enemy. And how was He going to defeat death and the devil? It was, end of verse 14, through death itself. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, that the wages of sin is death. And the bottom line within the judgment of God and the accounting of God, the bottom line is this. Either we will die for our sin or someone else dies for us. But the wages must be paid. And so as he came to save us, Jesus came to pay that price for us. Jonathan Griffiths with a message called Leading Many to Glory. And we're going to continue this message next time. Hope you make it a point to tune in. If you ever miss the broadcast, though, and you want to go back and listen, you can always do that by coming to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. You know, we're a listener-supported ministry and really depend on your generosity to keep this program on the station each day. And as you give a gift this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book from J.C. Ryle, it's called Daily Readings from All Four Gospels. And Jonathan, sometimes we may struggle to spend time daily with the Lord, to spend time in His Word. Is, is this the kind of book that might help with that? 
I think this is a great help to anyone who's wanting to make a start in daily Bible reading or who is wanting some refreshment in their daily Bible reading. And and we all need that help, whatever stage we're at in the Christian life. And J.C. Ryle has wonderful, fresh, timeless insights into the Gospels. And this book is broken into bite-sized daily morning and evening portions, which I think will be a tremendous help to anyone, whether you're just starting out on Bible reading or whether you are looking for something new after many decades of reading the Word of God each day. I think you'll find this to be a real help. Well, we'd love to send you a copy of this book from J.C. Ryle, Daily Readings from All Four Gospels. Again, it's our thank you as you give a gift of any amount and support Encounter the Truth this month. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.